You might have heard this before, but it goes like this. The bottles aren't returnable. The empty cans aren't burnable. Unless you're a Red Baptist church in this field and anything would burn there. The sonic booms are incredible. The tuna isn't edible. The offshore rigs are leakable. The billboards are unspeakable. The slums are incurable. The smog is unendurable. The phosphates aren't dissolvable. The problems seem unsolvable. The people unforgivable. And life's just intolerable. Now, that's not a real positive, optimistic look on life, but that is the viewpoint of many people today. Uh, last week, we looked at a, a study in John chapter 1, uh, just uh, John chapter 14, verse 1, I mean, uh, which was entitled, A New Start for a Troubled Heart. Because last week alone, we just seemed to have so many just really difficult times happen in our church. And um, so I thought it might be important to keep in perspective uh, that topic of tough times. And what I like to do this week and next week is carry on that passage that we find in John chapter 14. Because I want you to see all the things that the Lord has in store for us in that chapter. There are four gifts that you will find in John chapter 14. We're going to look at the first two of those gifts today. Um, I don't want to do them all in one day because uh, we got to go home and eat lunch. And I know most of you are really wanting to watch the Kansas City Chiefs play today. So I'm doing this for you. <clears throat> all right. There's two, uh, two gifts today I want us to take a look at. We looked at one uh, a little bit last week. I touched on it because it's in John 14, verses 1 through 4. And if any of you know me, you know well enough you've heard me quote my favorite Bible passage. It's John 14, verses 1 through 4, in my father's house. Um, Didi and I, we just got back from Oklahoma last night. Uh, we got word at the end of the week that uh, her uncle uh, passed away. Uh, we didn't see it coming, but uh, it happened. And so at the funeral yesterday, the pastor, when he was preaching, he preached out of this John chapter 14. Of course, it rang really close to me real fast. Uh, Cammy was sitting next to me, and she just turns and looks at me, and she recognized it too. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is pretty cool. At the end of the service, I was talking to him, and I told him, I said, you know, I wish you would have gone on because I'm preaching on that passage tomorrow, you know. But anyway, it was, it was just a real good time of reflection. And we get that same um, privilege to reflect on the things that the Lord has in store for us one day. And it's real. I mean, it's real. These things are things that's in your future, and I think it, it's good to be thinking along those lines. The first thing I want us to look at, the first gift, so to speak, is the gift of the Father's house. It's the gift of the Father's house. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
For in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, so that where I am, you will always be with me. It's the father's house. Now, when Jesus uh, told the disciples uh, this information. This is information that would have rung really uh, close to them. It would have spoken to them a lot. Uh, the reason is because they did not need to be reminded of how cramped the conditions were when they were following Jesus for those three years that Jesus was out doing the ministry. I mean, when you stop and you think about it, as Jesus is going from point A to point B to point C to point D, for those three years, as Jesus and those 12 disciples were going about, there were many a times, many a times, the majority of all the times, they were sleeping out in the wilderness. There was no place for them. Uh, when Jesus called the 12 disciples, he just told them to follow him. And they did. Uh, the disciples were very accustomed to crowded situations, uh, spending much of their time camping outdoors or at the mercy of a, of a stranger's hospitality. I mean, who do you know that has enough room in their house to put up 13 traveling evangelists if they come knocking on your door? So as Jesus is talking to the disciples that day, and he says, listen, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. That connected. And it should connect to us as well. Jesus himself made this comment. You'll see it on the screen. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said this, Foxes have their holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They knew what it was like to be without, just like Jesus did. But during this time, what does Jesus say to those disciples? In the future, you should see this place that's being made just for you. And he expounds on it. Jesus is the one who goes and prepares the room. Jesus is the one that comes and receives us unto himself the moment we pass from this life and he takes us to the Father's house. And you know, the Bible says too that your room, that room of yours in that future home, it's going to be custom made just for you. Now you stop and you think about that. That's what we read in verse 3 of this chapter. There's no other way to look at it. And who is the one that prepares your room? It's Jesus. You're not going to complain about your room. And some of you, oh, I'm sure of other churches, some people at some churches are pretty picky about things. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be perfect. Everybody gets a room in heaven, and each room will be individually prepared by Jesus himself. No two rooms are alike. So just let that soak in. 
Here's something else I want you to uh, think about that's interesting as well. In Revelation chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said this to the church of Pergamum, I believe. He said, to him who overcomes, this is a church, and he says, to him who overcomes, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who overcomes. And receives it. Christians, the Bible says, are called to be overcomers. You're called to be an overcomer. I am called to be an overcomer. The question is, what is it that we're supposed to overcome? Well, that depends on what is going on in your life. See, every single one of us here today, we're on a different road traveling. Your struggles, your problems, your toils will not be the same as the person next to you, but they have their set of challenges to cover as well. By overcoming, you are demonstrating your faithfulness to the Lord, and that is what Jesus is looking for in this thing that we call life. It's being found faithful. It is not about being found perfect. How many in this room are perfect today? No one is perfect. So we shouldn't react or relate to others and have the expectations that they are perfect. Because they're not. But we are called to be an overcomer. To overcome that challenge that stands up in front of us and don't give away any ground to that obstacle or that giant, whatever that obstacle is that's in your life. And to this church, this first Baptist church of Pergamum that Jesus was talking to in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is stating that those who overcome and thus prove to be faithful, they will receive a white stone. And the Name, a new name, will be on that stone. And no one will know that name except for the one who receives the stone. The question is, well, what is that white stone? What does a white stone mean? In the days of the New Testament, a white stone signified a couple things. If you went to a circus, they took white stones. It was a special kind of a white stone they would, uh, the stone would be used as uh, representing money or currency, and you could turn in a white stone for admission to get in and see a circus. I don't think it applies to that, but that was a purpose of a white stone. I think a better representation of what a white stone stood for that Jesus had in mind as he was telling that church at Pergamum has to do with in court back in Jesus' day, one of the ways, if you were taking the court or you were involved in a court proceeding and you were found innocent, you were handed a white stone. And I really believe that that picture better fits the narrative of what we're seeing right here. Why? Because you see, when Jesus said, listen, if you overcome, I'm going to give you this white stone. In other words, you're an overcomer. You're innocent. You, you, over, you, you did it. You did it. 
And so that is obviously, I think, uh, the best connection of a thought of what a white stone is. But it has the significance in the fact that it has a new name. It has a new name for us. Now, is this new name, is it a replacement for the name that you have right now? I don't know. I don't know. Could it be a name that reflects a title or a position of what you're going to be doing in heaven? Because we know we're going to be working. It's not like the work that we're doing right here where we're looking at the clock. We can't wait to punch out and go home. Um, But you're going to have a purpose in heaven for all eternity. It's in the word. Could it be a name that reflects something of what you're going to be doing one day? I don't know. We'll find out. But possibly. Uh, The one thing that we do know is this. The name is so unique that the only one who knows that name, Jesus says, is God himself. Now you think about that. Why is this such a perfectly held secret in heaven that God doesn't want anyone to know it until he hands it to you? I don't know. But it sure gets my interest a little bit perked up. I kind of like to know what that is myself. Jesus stated that those who overcome and prove to be faithful would get this white stone. And we receive this uniquely monogrammed white stone characterizing our own personality in Christ. No one knows us like God knows us. Amen? Isn't that true? That is so true. No one knows us like God. And God is able to tailor paradise for all eternity um, in a way that will result in maximum fulfillment. You will be so very, very happy in this place. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says it really plainly. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not even entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared, all that God has in store for those who love him. And why is that important to remember? Because what did Jesus say one time as he was with the disciples? He's talking to the people. And what did he say? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not the Ten Commandments, even though that's a given. It's if you love me, then do what I ask. We have a lot of people today that pay lip service to God. Everybody believes in God and Jesus when they proclaim the the answer to the question on do you believe, but few actually follow Jesus. And Jesus says, listen... If you're going to follow me, it's going to be evident by your obey, your, your, uh, the way you obey, your obedience. And so it's important to keep that in mind. And the reason for that is simply because God doesn't want lip service from us. He wants us to follow him. He wants our actions to speak before our mouth even needs to bear testimony to what we're doing or who we are or who we represent, so on and so on. But make no mistake about it, y'all. That future room that the Lord is preparing for you in his house is going to be beyond amazing and beyond what any of us deserve. But why is he doing it? 
because of his crazy love that he has for you and for me. You find a right parent, mom and dad, that really loves their children to such a degree that they demonstrate it by what they do and how they raise that child, the distance that they go. There is nowhere close the truth of of the point of when you take that picture and you compare it to Jesus and the love that he has for us, those two don't even come close. But the Bible makes it clear. Jesus is doing a lot for us. He's going to come back, and he's the one that's going to receive you upon the moment of your death. It's not an angel. It's not a loved one that's on the welcoming committee or however that plays out. We'll find out. It's Jesus. Jesus says, when and if I prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will receive you into myself so that where I am, you will always be with me. Where? In the Father's house. In the Father's house. There's a story of a woman, true story of a woman, uh, who was concerned about her two-year-old son by the name of Jamie, who had died. And she was comforted by the thought that he was well cared for in heaven, but she still worried that he had maybe forgotten his mommy and daddy back here who loved him. And since the Bible says there is no sadness in heaven, she reasoned amongst herself that he didn't miss her or dad. Finally, one day she asked her husband, Paul, she said, Paul, do you think Jamie has forgotten us? Does he ever wonder why we're not there with him anymore? And Paul thought about it for a while, and then Paul responded to his wife, and he told her this. He said this, and this is good. He said, remember when we used to leave him with grandma for a few hours? He would kiss us goodbye, then run to the toy shelf. When we returned, he'd run toward us with outstretched arms, happy to see us again. But grandma said he never cried while we were gone. And the reason is because he knew we always came back to get him. And then he said, well, I think that's how it is. Don't you imagine that even God himself surpasses grandma at keeping little boys and girls happy and secure until we come back? Man, that is good. That is so good. The first gift that we see is the gift of the Father's house. The second gift that we see this morning is the best gift of all. We see a picture of the Father's Son. In verses 7 through 14. So I'll start in verse... Uh, let me start in verse 5. Because I already quoted to you the other. Jesus finished by saying... Um, that where I am, there you may be also. John chapter 14, uh, verse 4. And then Jesus said, And you know the way where I am going. Thomas, one of the disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And now we see a picture of the Father's Son. 
Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. Philip said to Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father, Jesus said. So how do you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we see Jesus moving from this this point in time when we're going to be received into a new room in God's, uh, God's, God's home in heaven, and it, that, that focus shifts from the home and it moves onto the Son who takes center stage, of which we know right off Jesus takes center stage because of who he is. How often do you think about the fact that one day you're going to get to talk to Jesus? Face to face. I mean, really, that is a, that's a crazy thought. But that is a true thought. Who's going to have the guts to say, you look nothing like those pictures that we hung all over our church? <laughs> Will the girls comment on how nice his hair looks? Will the guys comment about all the times that he, I mean, he just came in and, well, if it's before rapture, when he comes back on the horse, wage war, thou Armageddon, and all that, I mean, that's a guy thing right there. I mean, they're just loaded with, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, what are we going to say to him? I don't know. You get the privilege to have a go-to-go meeting anytime you want with Jesus. It's going to happen. We're not just jumping on clouds, streaming harps, that would be hell to me. We're in heaven. We're in a new place and a new body. We have new company. We have a new purpose. We have a new identity. And now we're living by something that's brand new. That's not, it's not faith. We're seeing him now face to face. How often do you think about the fact you get to see Jesus? What hadn't occurred to Philip was, as Philip was talking to Jesus, and Philip said, as we read it, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. What was Philip asking Jesus for? He was asking Jesus for a theophany. What is a theophany? A theophany is a physical representation of God. 
what Philip was saying to Jesus, Lord, show us something and we'll believe it. You only need to do it one time. Go. That's what he's doing. Maybe he was looking for a burning bush. That's a theophany. When God appeared to Moses from within the burning bush, but the bush wasn't being consumed, like Red Baptist was yesterday when we had that wild fire out there, that was God. Maybe, maybe he was asking for a pillar of fire, a thundering cloud. We don't know. The one thing we do know, he was wanting Jesus to show him something. Now, when you think about that, Jesus' response to him was very, very, very clear. When he just gently told Philip, he said, have I been with you this long and yet you don't know who I am? And then he spends the whole rest of the time, verses 7 through 14, laying out how he and the Father are one and the same. Just days or weeks, maybe it was a month earlier, Philip was privileged to be with the disciples when Jesus encountered the Pharisees in John chapter 10. And as, John, uh, as Jesus was dealing with these self-righteous Pharisees, he had healed someone and after he healed someone, it was one of the rare times that Jesus asserted his deity. Jesus did not walk around this earth telling everyone he was God. That was not his mission. Very few times did he uh, remove the veil from some people and reveal to them at that moment who he really was. Now at the end is when he was saving it for the grand finale. He was going to show everyone who he was in the end by rising from the dead. But the Bible says one of those times that he revealed himself is found in John chapter 10. And it's when Jesus is talking and he tells the Pharisees, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. His reference was, you don't hear my voice. That's why you don't receive me. That is why you are not of me. I don't even know you. And as Jesus is having this exchange with the Pharisees, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That is the eternal security of the believer right there. And then Jesus said in John 10, 30, the most powerful verse that we've read up to this point in John's gospel. And what did he say? I and my Father are one and the same. Right after he said that to the Pharisees, the Bible says they picked up stones and attempted to kill Jesus. Why? Because he committed blasphemy. Well, was blasphemous. He just called himself God. He put him on equal footing with God. And to do that is a blasphemer. So what does Jesus do? He uses sarcasm when you read the rest of that chapter. And Jesus says, hold on. Before you stone me, tell me what good thing did I do that deserves being stoned to death? See, he hadn't done anything bad. So tell me what good thing have I done? And they replied and said to him, for a good deed we do not stone you, but for you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Who is Jesus? 
We call him God's son, but he is also God the Father. Jesus made it clear. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He who knows me knows him who sent me. He who believes in me believes in him who sent me. Now that is very, very good news. Other than the fact of who he is, and we know who he is, but why is it important to stress so much about the identity of Jesus and the identity of the Father? I'm going to tell you why. I think it's a really good thing. I had a hang-up on this. I was saved when I was 19 years old. Wasn't a Christian. Wasn't raised in a Christian home. So when I got saved, I just jumped into the Bible. Never understood more than half of anything I was reading, but I stayed with it. I asked a zillion questions all the time. Sometime within that first year or two years of my spiritual growth, one thing occurred to me. Why was God so angry in the Old Testament? Now remember, I didn't know anything. So while quick I could discern and pick stuff up, I was trying to learn. It's one of those, if you ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer every time. Well, I had the question, why was God so angry? These people were cursed. These people, there was a plague. He wiped out this, this group. And how do you connect this God, uh, the Old Testament, the 4,000 years, with this passive lamb, this gentle lamb of the New Testament? And they're one and the same. Man, I, I struggled with that. And I've been thinking about that on this. Of course, I worked my way through it. And I, I hope that I can do that with you too when I make this point. And here's the point. Some people have a lot of reservations about the Father when you look at the Old Testament. And that is because of the things that we find that are mentioned throughout. Curses, executing judgments, wars, catastrophes, plagues, so on. Um, and you may have those reservations too. You need to keep in mind that the world is full of sickness and disease, innocent suffering and justice and death because of sin. But here's what I want you to hear. We don't have any reservations when we look at Jesus, do we? We never do. You never hear anyone ever say, man, Jesus is just, he's harsh. He's too hard. He is so critical. You'll never hear that. And yet, what was Jesus saying about God, his Father? We're one and the same. That is because the things that we find in Jesus, we need to remember, are the same things, the same things that we find in God the Father. Y'all, they are one and the same. Jesus came down out of heaven. He took on a human form and a body just like us he's God in a bod they say it all the time with youth it goes it used to go over good back in that day but who was Jesus he is God in human form Jesus is making it clear that God's nature is revealed in him God the father his nature is revealed in Jesus in other words, he is saying, you want to know what God is like? Jesus said, Jesus said, look at me. Look at Jesus. You want to know exactly what God is like? 
check me out. That's what Jesus is saying right there. His fullness, the fullness of God is in Jesus, the fullness of the Son. So, going by those words of Jesus himself, Jesus lays out a picture of who God is and what his heart is like. God. You want to see a quick snapshot of that little heart of God? In Christ, we see a father's love. Jesus loved people. He loved them and he encouraged them with his words and his deeds. If God is fully in Christ, which we know he is, then what else do we see? Love moved Jesus to perform a miracle for his mother at a wedding feast, even though he said, my time had not yet come. The father was just as embarrassed for the mom and the dad of this Jewish family that was throwing a party. It was the wedding of a child, and the wine ran out, which in that day was a huge disgrace. To us, we just, hey, okay, well, thanks for coming out, you know, and everyone leaves, or we just run to the store. Not, not so then. Mary goes to Jesus, and she tells Jesus, they ran out of wine. Jesus looks at her, and he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Has my hour come? That was his way of saying, Mom. And by the way, that woman thing, that's not a, you don't do that now unless you want to die. But back in Jesus' day, that was a polite thing to address. So when he said, Mary. But after Jesus looked around and he noticed the anxiety, the worry on the family because they'd ran out of wine, Jesus called the servants of that house and he said to them, Bring every single empty pot you can get your hands on and bring them to me. Jesus blessed the pots. It was full of wine. That was Jesus' first miracle. The first miracle he ever did. And what did he do? He used it at a wedding feast because he felt for the embarrassment of the family that was throwing this feast. The fullness of God is the same as the fullness of Jesus. You want to see another heart of God? Love moved Jesus to reach out to an ostracized Samaritan woman. We talked about that a week ago. That was God. Love moved Jesus to heal the blind, feed the multitudes, rescue a woman caught in the act of adultery. That was God. Love moved Jesus to tears. When he visited the graveside of his friend Lazarus. That is one of the times in the Bible that we read when God cried. Love was drawing Jesus irresistibly to a cross. On a hill. Outside of a city in Jerusalem. In order to pay a debt that you and I could not afford to pay. That's how much God loves you. So what can we conclude here today? Paul said it best, and you'll see it up here too. On 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul told the Corinthians, he said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed unto us 
the word of reconciliation. Never ever again can one doubt the Father's love. Not in sickness, suffering, injustice, or even death. Why? Because when we see Jesus, we have what? We've seen the Father. There was a preacher's son who became very ill. He took his son to the doctor. They ran all the tests. And the test came back. And the doctor told uh, the family that it was terminal. That his son would not make it. And he was going to die. The father with a heavy heart went through the hospital ward. And he went to his son's bedside. And at first, he read a scripture passage, and he had a time of prayer with his son. And then he gently told his son what the doctors had said about what he had. There was nothing that they could do, and that he was going to pass away, and it was not going to be long from now. The father asked his son, he said, are you afraid to meet God? And blinking away a few tears, the little boy replied back and he said, No, Dad, not if he's like you. Now you let that sink in. That's pretty good. Not if he's like you. Therefore, since the father is like the son, and the son is like the father, there's no reason to fear. There's no reason to worry. God's got this. And all he wants from us is the same obedience as Stephanie portrayed when she decided, I'm going to get baptized. He just wants us to just follow him. The only reason why you go to church is where you spiritually get your work out. This is where you come and you hang around with other brothers and sisters in the faith and they are there to encourage you. And then you jump in and you find your place to serve. That's all it is. This is just where you go to hang your hat, get things sharpened, get things more focused and tuned in and then we just charge hell with a squirt gun together and see how many people we can reach for Jesus. And all along the way, we lift one another up. And we edify one another and we encourage one another and we pray for one another because we are there for one another. I and my Father are one in the same. There are four gifts that the Father gives his children. One, we know, it's the Father's house. And the best gift of all is that second gift, is the Father's Son. We'll look at the next two gifts next week. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we come before you this morning, God, we just want to take this time and thank you for all that you have done and for all the things, Lord, that you are doing. And God, we want to ask that you would help us today to reflect on those two things that await us. God, one, we already have the Son because when we give our lives to you or when we surrender, whenever we become a Christian, the Bible says your Holy Spirit enters into us. That is you, Lord, and you are with us. God, we have a house that we'll be going home to in just a few minutes, but we also have another place one day 
and a place called heaven that's being prepared by you. Father, I pray and ask that maybe this week you would help us all to focus on the gifts that you have given us. And all you ask in return from us is obedience, just to obey you, just to follow you. The same way, God, that we want our children to follow our instructions because we've kind of been around a little bit longer, we know. It's the same way, God, that you relate to us. Lord, you know the way. And you just want us to obey and follow and believe. So, Lord, I pray and ask this. God, today, this morning, for those in this room that are struggling and going through things that's just difficult, Lord, would you encourage them and give them answers. Answers to why something is going on. Show them a way out. But God, would you lead us all the way? And Father, we just want to ask too this morning that you would meet the needs that we have, whatever they may be. And God, we might be able to leave here today uh, different because we have dealt with the things that we need to. And so on that, God, we just ask you would move accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray and we ask all these things.